Hey, Teddy. Hey, Nick. Do you remember Wild at Heart? Oh, God, I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast that explores artifacts from turn of the millennium Christian culture. So, Teddy, after last week, I highly doubt that you forgot about John Eldridge's early 21st century masterwork, Wild at Heart. Uh, but before you dove into Stacey Eldridge's book, Captivating, uh, what sort of place did Wild at Heart occupy in your imagination, your like memory? So do you remember when you were in elementary school? It might have been like fifth or sixth grade because I was only homeschooled seven through 12. So I did have a little world exposure here. I don't know if you had this, but they separated the boys and the girls to give them like the talk, right? Mm -hmm. Probably at fifth grade, it wasn't even about sex. It was just about like, here's what girls' bodies do and here's what boys' bodies do. And I knew that the boys were off talking about those things. And I got whispers of what it was about, but mostly didn't know what was going on. That's how I feel about Wild <laughs> at Heart. And any of the correspond, any of those like companion books. So like Every Young Man's Battle, Wild at Heart. Like I knew that they, I knew we were split up and I knew we were talking about things and I knew they were important things. And every so often the boys would hint at what they were talking about, either in small group or maybe on Zanga. There's <laughs> a blast from that. Ooh, throwback to Zanga. Zanga. But beyond like the cover of the book, it was mostly a mystery. That's how mm -hmm. I feel about that book. That's fascinating. Uh, that is the pretty much exactly my experience with captivating and uh, every young woman's battle and all that stuff. There's like a trend, especially in the era that we're concerned with, of segregating our self-help books according to gender. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually think there's very little once you get out of the teen realm that is just self-help for people like christian self-help for people can you think of anything that like sort of fits into that genre like here it is it's just generic self-help as opposed to masculine or feminine based if they are they weren't as mainstream i'm thinking of something like the 40 days of purpose program which mm. was huge and that was i mean i actually really enjoyed that as a teenager but um if those if that kind of curriculum existed, it was really eclipsed by these like more gendered programs. Yeah, uh, which I guess is true in mainstream culture. What I'm thinking about wellness culture, diet culture, you know, and, and how I feel like this was an era of pretty gendered um, self-help. I guess it still is, but mm. they loved it during the church, loved it during this time. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, yeah I, I think now that you mention it, like purpose driven life, that, that oh, that's what it was. Thing. Yeah. Purpose driven life. Yeah. yeah. I think that was one of their like side programs. You know, every every one of these titles is an industry in and of itself. Sure. Um, but yeah, like that that one seems particularly ubiquitous and mm -hmm. generic. Yeah. Um, we might have to do that one of these days, unfortunately. Yeah. It's been a request, to be honest. So. Oh, no. OK. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. Uh, very much uh, following in the footsteps of my much more organized co-host here. Uh, I, too, have a thesis with three main points oh, that I would like to cover. Look at this structure. OK. Oh, my gosh. It's torture, basically. But anyway, <laughs> um, here's what I have to say about Wild at Heart now. Much like I suspected, number one, it is mostly bullshit. OK. I assumed it would be more bullshit than it was. Oh, okay. But only by a little bit. We'll get to that. Okay. Uh, two, it basically boils down to flimsy essentialism, flimsy mm -hmm. gender essentialism. Yeah. And I mean flimsy both in its foundation and the excuse for it even being in the book. Mm, okay. And then that leads to point three. I'm going to say very little about this until we get there. But I don't think this is a book about masculinity and men. Ah, OK. Yeah, this is um, this is interesting. I think I think I know where you're going, but sure. Yeah. So so I'm going to just 
hang that on the side, keep that pin in the back pocket of your brain jeans, as I tell my students, and we'll we'll go to from there. So I want to talk a little bit um very briefly about my experience with this book. So uh, Teddy, just like you know, you discussed with that like spiritual mother figure uh going through captivating with you and your teenage years, I didn't quite have that experience. But I did have this moment when I first came to Wild at Heart. I was young. I didn't really know who I was. I mean, just to give you some perspective, this was when I was at Bible college to become a pastor. <laughs> I am not there anymore, guys. Spoilers. Come a long way, baby. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I was desperately searching for some excuse to be a particular way or to 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 find out what it meant to be something in the world for myself. And having been homeschooled for most of my life, I was very interested in what it meant to be social, to have relationships. I, you know, <laughs> I had a crush on a girl in high school and she was determined, thanks to Josh Harris and Rebecca St. James, to not date until college. <laughs> okay. So uh, that and the fact that I was uh, pretty creepy and socially awkward uh high schooler please hold your shock you know I, I didn't have much of like in the way of romance by the time i got to college i was kind of desperate for a romantic relationship i was kind of desperate to have an identity with like kind of co-defined by other people in, in a in a unhealthy way at the time but i do think that's genuinely a good thing to have mm -hmm. yeah so so this this book radically gave me a like oh here it is you're looking for something to be here it is mm -hmm. you know god made you to be wild and to be adventurous and to to do all of these things and and so that like the phrase that's going to keep coming up a lot today is warrior poet god. okay i think today i rolled out of her fucking head there uh, <laughs> yeah like i look now at that phrase that was you know ubiquitous in the text of the book and also was a defining phrase for me through my college years like that's sort of the identity that eldritch is like handing men in this book is that mm. idea of a, a, a warrior poet mm. um i remember when i finally went away from when i finally went away from the bible college and transitioned to my english degree I was in a class, uh, it was a John Milton class, oddly enough, and we were talking about Paradise Lost. Oh, no. And uh, it, I mean, the, that class wasn't like literally the class was we read Areopagitica and one of his other political texts in the first two weeks. And then we did a book a week on Paradise on Paradise Lost. That's the oh, entire gosh. semester. And it was a lot. It was a lot. But anyway, uh, that's a side point. Mm -hmm. One of the other students in the class made a comment about like that idea of like warrior masculinity. And he's like, come on, it's the 21st century. You're not like a soldier unless you're actually in the military. Like, and why do you need to be that anyway? Why is like this warrior thing part of your identity? It's just it's terrible. And little zealous Nick, who would come fresh off of reading wild at heart only a year ago was like well that's that's me i'm like that i'm a warrior poet and he looked at me and he said what really? <laughs> but but you're smart what <laughs> uh and and ben if you're listening i'm sorry i was such an idiot <laughs> uh, even, i did a really good job of fooling even myself into thinking i was smart back then but thank you. Uh, I hope you know that that interaction is a uh, trauma nightmare that my anxiety likes to bring up daily. So I, I was going to I was going to out you and say, I think I've heard you tell that story like over the course of four years that I've known you multiple times. Yes. So I know that it's impact that memory is like really fresh in your, you know, fresh in your mind. And like it kind of like that particular thing, yeah. like bugs you well it it really does for a number of reasons and I, and I won't really go too in depth into this but just like my journey through my personal identity 
was sort of grounded in this like warrior poet mentality. Mm -hmm. But I'm an academic. Yeah. And it didn't take me long digging into philosophy and literature and culture and and all of these things that you and I love or at the very least have devoted ourselves to to see kind of how much of a bullshit explanation of identity and gender it is. And particularly for me, uh, like I really heavily embraced nonviolence. Yeah, I was going to say that's the that's the thing that really it feels it feels odd to hear you tell this story and know that that's like something, an identity you stood up for, because it's in such harsh contrast to who you are today and what you're most vocal about. I mean, I I texted you and joked these gendered books are ridiculous. I'm way more likely to buy a weapon than Nick is. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that goes for both Teddy and my partner. Right. right, she is so much more likely to do, than I, and and like that's fine. Uh, but according to John and Stacy here, something's wrong here. Yeah, there's something wrong with both of us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm a, a very strong proponent of nonviolence. I'm a very I'm very vocal about men being able to be caring and nurturing. Yeah, and loving and. These things that John has actively called soft mm. and and uh, bastardizations. He hasn't said use that phrase because, you know, that's a no, no word. But bastardizations of masculinity, like th- these are things that I embrace and I think are a core part of my identity. You're maybe about to explain this, but I am a little perplexed by the the coupling of the the warrior poet. What is the relationship? Are you going to explain this? What is the relationship between these two things? Is he? Yeah. So that's a perfect starting point for point number one, actually, that most of this is BS. You've kind of identified it perfectly in the dissonance with the warrior poet thing. See, John loves poetry and movies. Okay, so does Stacy. I think I've said like yeah. the book is littered with these like movie quotes and media references. Yes, so is John's. Like foundationally, this book is rooted in poetry and movie references. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I-, I was reading a review that um, uh, from a, a another Christian author because I did kind of the same thing you did, and I saw what did the Christian community have to say about this. But he tracked it, and John Eldridge quotes. Uh, more poetry and movies than he does scripture. The Bible, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. like, mm. you know, and a and a and a key figure throughout the book is William Wallace, who mm. is you know the the Braveheart character, right? So you know Mel Gibson with face paint, screaming and mooning people, right? Right. It's a famous scene in Braveheart where all the Scottish army moons the English army. Yeah, I forgot about that, but yeah. I would imagine most people like blocked out half that movie and everybody (laughs) just remembers the freedom speech. Yeah. 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 The ending. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, my favorite part of that movie when it was over. Yep. (laughs) And yeah, but but a central figure is William Wallace, particularly Mel Gibson's portrayal of William Wallace. And so I think that this is rooted in John's own identity, right? John Eldridge uh, went to grad school. I think he has some degree in like, he has like a leadership degree or, a, or an MDiv or something like that. I didn't look it up because I care very little, mm-hmm. but he likes to read. He's, you know, a, a pseudo academic. Right. So how do you um, justify that? Yeah. With this wild and adventurous machismo identity that you're advocating for. It's kind of like Stacy having to constantly justify the I want to be wooed and romanced and taken care of. But I also have this totally adventurous side and want to go out and like conquer things, even though I'm a woman. And like yeah. but the two can don't worry, the two can coexist. And it's like it's it's fine. You can just be a dynamic human like that's mm-hmm. we're all good with that. Like, But the whole book is like justifying that. Yeah, you're sort of presaging what's coming in point two with that flimsy essentialism, but also very like importantly talking about how this is bullshit. John is just 
absolutely obsessed with this idea of like you have to be a manly man but that doesn't mean you can't like poetry that okay you have to like romance your women and go for them and like be adventurous but like you know don't abuse people Eh. he doesn't (laughs) really say that he doesn't say it this way he does not say don't be aggressive in your romance or Mm -hmm. don't take no for it he doesn't like pull that language back and i think that's probably the second or first it's one of the most toxic parts of the book is that he lays a foundation for textbook toxic masculinity even if he doesn't advocate for it all the foundational arguments are laid out so you can very easily take the next step and go okay but but you know john said that this was a good thing and that was a good thing and this is a good thing so like it's there Mm-hmm. His arguments, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about this. This is the critique that I was mentioning. This is uh, Gary Gilly uh, from or Gary Gilly from Think on These Things Ministries. And so this is back from 2009. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. This is 2004. This comes from. So this is around the time that it were um, uh, the book comes out. He even points out the like idea of it being an industry. So Teddy, this is a, a little bit of a quote. Um, I want to uh, a little bit of a lengthy quote I'd like you to read here. This is again from Gary Gilly or Gilly. I'm sorry, I'm butchering the name. This is about a paragraph where he talks about the good parts of the book. Okay. That Eldridge has caught a wave is beyond question, but what is the draw? Why do millions of Christian men read this book and why do they stand in line to attend wild at heart retreats? What is the attraction? Let's start with the good news. Eldridge is concerned, and rightfully so, with the kind of man being produced in America as well as in the church. I remember 20 years ago when a secular commentator lamented the, quote, wimping of America, end quote. He was referring to the modern propensity for turning boys into girls and men into women in the wake of a feminist movement. Over the last 30 years, we have taught men to get in touch with their feminine side, learn to explore and share their feelings with other males get over their reluctance to hug men and cry in front of others, control their aggressiveness, and to submit to their wives. In other words, we have taught men how to be women. At the same time, of course, we have trained women to be more aggressive. Is it any wonder that men are confused about their roles today? The Christian world, always in lockstep with society, has done no better. From James Dobson, for whom Eldred worked for many years, to promise keepers, men have increasingly been pressured to become more feminine. Promise keepers seem to be particularly odious to Eldred, although never mentioned by name. What do you think about that? So is he saying this? So basically his whole point here is that Eldred is tapping into this phenomenon of the feminization of men. And therefore, that's why all these men are drawn to it. I feel like there's a big, big butt coming in this review. Is that right? Like, oh, yeah. So I'll I'll sort of like tilt that away like here if this is a two-part review okay he spends two full like you know 600 plus word response like going down actually it's probably close to like a thousand words each of just like detailing his complaints with eldritch but i wanted to focus in here because i think this encapsulates and i this might be true for captivating as well uh the christian reaction to wild at heart which is oh, I like what you're saying, but I don't like the way you said it. Mm. Right. Like, you know, this guy says, let's start with the good news. Eldridge doesn't like that men are being wimps. Right. Right. Like that's that's what he says. Oh, and he's rightly identifying those stupid feminists. This is just sort of like very generic misogynist conservative reactions to anti-essentialist thought. Right. Yeah. He mentioned the wimping of America and and I guarantee you all listeners, this will be something we address soon because I cannot keep staying quiet about this man. But it reminds me of Mark Driscoll. Do you remember anything about him? No, I don't. I mean, it sounds really familiar, but. Yeah, so Mark Driscoll was sort of uh, when I was in college put up as the uh, antithesis or the nemesis of Rob Bell. Oh, so when yeah. you were in college, you were either a Bell devotee or you were a Driscoll disciple, right? Like you went one of those. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
in the name of transparency and authenticity. I was a devotee of Driscoll. And I am so sorry to anyone who I ever, like, (laughs) who I ever interacted with and advocated for Driscoll, because that man is such a piece of shit. This is a very confessional episode. <laughs> it really is. To it's be starting honest, to feel like a Christian open mic here. Is there anything else? Any other dirty laundry you want to air? Honestly, this is a really sensitive subject for me. I know. I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. No, please. If we can't joke about the things that we're sensitive to, we'll never get through this, Teddy. Don't change our dynamic now. Uh, no, this is a really sensitive subject for me because of how... Uh, a hyper focused hyper fixed i was on this as my identity when i was you know a, a shitbag teenager mm-hmm. right like my teenage dirtbag years are not you know <laughs> oh i listened to iron maiden or i i mean i did that stuff but i don't regret that the stuff that i regret is being so devoted to at, like eldridge's thinking and driscoll's thinking Mm-hmm. Driscoll, I think, is the perfect person to mention here because one of the early scandals that came out about Driscoll was that on the like internet forum boards for his church and like on Reddit, he would have two profiles his public facing Pastor Mark profile and an anonymous profile where he named himself William Wallace II. Mm. So he literally figured himself as the second coming of this warrior poet figure. And he spent years being aggressive, like almost men's rights advocate level of aggressive on these boards, Mm -hmm. literally discussing how men deserve and have rights to demand oral sex from their wives. Mm -hmm. And part of a wife's submission is not questioning that. Borderline marital rape apology, not not borderline marital rape apology. Yeah. Right. And he very specifically coined the phrase the and I apologize. I This is actually a word I don't like to use, but I'm going to throw it out here. The pussification of America. <laughs> OK. In which he laments a lot of these things that Eldritch and, and, and uh, Gilly here are lamenting. So you see what I mean? Eldritch brings this up to sort of this uh, very like socially acceptable threshold. Yeah. As a foundation for everyone to just kind of take the next step. So while Eldritch's stuff, you know, Eldritch's bullshit is mostly harmless on its own merits. Right. Where it goes any step further is very, very harmful. Mm hmm. And is the foundation of so much abuse. Um, so to, to cover the rest of Gary Gilley's review, because I think it's actually really interesting to see this. He largely agrees with the premise and the purpose, but he disapproves of the methodology and the rhetorical construction of his arguments. In other words, he doesn't like the way that he uses scripture. Yeah. He doesn't like the way that he idolizes these pop culture figures. Uh, he particularly points out John Eldridge's uh, quotations of Robert Bly, Hmm. the poet, which is really interesting. I'm not honestly all that knowledgeable about Robert Bly. I know that he talked a lot about masculinity and his poetry. And he was like one of those people like, oh, we need, you know, he was an essentialist. But, you know, it's interesting that the uh, text captivating and wild at heart both received similar critique in regards to rhetorical choices and, and then also the choice to incorporate media to draw on other texts besides scripture. I am assuming that, you know, John and state, that's his first name, right? John, John yeah. John and Stacy wanted the books to sort of mirror one another. And it's funny that it reaped similar critiques from, you know, both sides. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The one, uh, I mean, there's more critiques that I think are just like, yeah, this is not the point. Uh, problems with an unbiblical view of Satan. <laughs> oh. Problems with um, just some like generic theological issues. I think, uh, yeah. Invocation of psychobabble. And then he's like, John quotes Freud at one point. I'm like, yeah, I mean, he misquotes Freud. But like, really, that's what you're going to have. a pro- OK, fine. 
And then there's this one really interesting critique that that I saw in a number of these reviews. They argue that John Eldritch is actually uh, advocating for open theism. I don't know if you know what that phrase means, but for our listeners, open theism was actually something that when I was more like more in the spiritual scene and wanted to hold on to those beliefs a little more thoroughly that I actually really liked. The idea is basically God doesn't know everything. God can't see the future. That kind of like liberates him from some responsibility of the problem of evil. And it sort of gives him this like out like, oh, you know, God didn't know what was going to happen. He made us and he provides for us. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have this like determined end view. He knows what he's going to do eventually because he's decided he's going to do that. But he doesn't know everything. It's a right. Of, I feel like it's a rite of passage for people who are like struggling, you know, especially with mm-hmm. the suffering question. I notice it as a step. Yes. You know, that a lot of people have to take. Like, maybe I can still hang on to this relationship with this God figure if I can justify his inaction with, you know, this sort of this whole theory. Um, yeah. Most people pass through it, though, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know who has like really. I can think of a couple ex-evangelical figures who hold on to it. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, like, if you're someone who's in that space, I highly recommend reading more about open theism and the idea that's sort of connected to that of progressive revelation. Those are the two that I really uh, recommend looking into if you want to hold on to uh, the Christian faith as part of, of who you are. But nevertheless, I, I think it's really funny that all of these uh, Christian reviewers condemn Eldridge for advocating open theism. I found him wildly pun intended, deterministic, Hmm. which is going to be sort of our transition into point number two, the flimsy essentialism. John, and I'm sure this is true of Stacey based on our conversation in the last episode, has this sort of very determined view of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman, and more so, what will make men feel better? What will fix this problem that he's identified? He says there are specific things that are coded in you as a man. Right. That if we address these things, you will feel better, you will be better, you will, you know, it's that that self-help arc, right? Teddy, what do you imagine John Eldritch thinks are the three core desires of the masculine heart. Oh my gosh. Really putting me on the spot. Um, to protect would be one. Maybe to be appreciated. And maybe to be desired. Or no, that's too, that's too girly. Um, I'm trying to think of something that satisfies the sex component, but I don't know how to articulate it. <laughs> I don't know. So I feel like I'm trying to come up with some triad of like sex appreciation for work and then like fighting and protection or something. You you are so on the money. It's really oh, funny. I know men. <laughs> um, Ironic. Do you want to know why I know this? Why? Because this rhetoric is still so popular. Mm hmm. Among the like Jordan Petersons, the Matt Walsh's, the, you know, me, and I'm always mm-hmm. like trying to listen to all the sides. Right. So I feel like even though this is book is 15 years old, however old it is, it's it's still so fresh. 20. Oh, 20. OK. Oh, right. 2005. 2004. Oh, OK. So it was before Captivating. That's interesting. OK. This this rhetoric has not expired. No, no, it, it hasn't. And, and that's part of why I'm going to say that this is like the perfect example of the flimsy, like gender stuff. So his th- the way he words them, the three are every man has three core desires that he structures his life around a battle to fight. OK. Oh, wow. I even got the order right. Right. An adventure to live. OK. And a beauty to rescue. Mm. 
So you're perfectly right. Like the battle to fight is there needs to be some sort of struggle or else men aren't happy. That's literally like he he even goes so far as to say, like, oh, this is why men are more competitive than women. Really? Do you have you ever played a board game with my wife? But like, so men are more competitive. Men need violence and bloodshed. Men are more likely to where is the I want to pull that quote up here. Yeah. Here is a here's a quote I'd like you to uh, read and then respond to if you don't mind. This is in his section, A Battle to Fight. Oh, God, I'm always I, I always am embracing myself when a man starts a sentence with little girls do not whatever. OK, little girls yep. do not invent games where large numbers of people die, where bloodshed is a prerequisite for having fun. Hockey, for example, was not a feminine creation, nor was boxing. <laughs> a boy wants to attack something, and so does a man, even if it's only a little white ball on a tree on a tee. He wants to whack it into kingdom come. On the other hand, my boys do not sit down to tea parties. They do not call their friends on the phone to talk about relationships. They grow bored of games that have no element of danger or competition or bloodshed. Cooperative games based on relational interdependence are complete nonsense. No one is killed, they ask, incredulous. No one wins. What's the point? The universal nature of this ought to have convinced us by now. The boy is a warrior. The boy is his name. And those are not boyish antics he is doing. When boys play at war, they are rehearsing their part in a much bigger drama. One day, you might need that boy to defend you. Wow. Before I... Before I handle this, in my own way... What do you think, Teddy? Do you need bloodshed as a prerequisite for fun? Okay. Well, I laughed at the um that the girls don't want to play games where people die because my Barbies were like chronically in very, very violent situations. So <laughs> I don't I don't know what little girls he's talking about. I'm talking car crashes, domestic violence, like it got shit got real. Um <laughs> but I'm just so in, I'm intrigued by the conflation of and this maybe is like a, this is a um, maybe different conversation, but I'm interested in this conflation between like competition and violence. Yeah. Like the way he goes from like, um, you know, oh, does, does no one, does no one win in this game? Yeah. I buy that, that boys actually, a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Like what fun is it if there's no competition? I have a friend who's so competitive and is like, it's not fun if we don't care about the winning part. Right. But then when he jumps to like, is no one killed? It's like, what? I don't know that that was a that's a big jump for me. Yeah. Um, well, I absolutely agree with you because I think that um, and this is this is something I see a lot in like uh, contemporary um, anti-capitalist rhetoric, which is just like greed is something we assume is coded into our psychology before the fact like biologically coded into our identity when really greed is just like a side effect of capitalism on some level Mm -hmm. i think the same thing is can be said of uh, competition right like all of our games are structured as competitions that's like part of a game period is tension whether that tension i can get into game theory now and i'm gonna go crazy but i won't um but but a a foundation of game theory is tension where is the conflict is the conflict between you and the structure of the game between all of the players and the the person that's running the game between one player and another between two teams tension is key to games it's just a matter of where the designer of the game put that tension All games have that taking the next step up and saying, I like games, therefore I like competition. I think is almost as serious of a jump as competition to bloodshed. But I think it's one that we more often make. Mm -hmm. Right. Your point of how do we get from competition to bloodshed, I think, is one that's actually being made more easily by people when people say nowadays I like video games. It used to mean a lot of different things. And maybe this is my like lack of interaction in the video game community. But like the number of dudes who play Call of Duty, the number of, you know, like which is a war, literal war game, 
the number of people who play the like Fortnite, which are all the games based on like competition, which is killing the opponent. That's skyrocketing, right? Like games are becoming more coded as war. And played out in that environment. And I I think those are at the very least the most popular games. So there's this really interesting, I think, movement away from there's tension in a game to bloodshed makes a game good. Mm-hmm. I lo- I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, OK, so what he's doing here is identifying what we would say are probably themes or trends in human behavior. Right. The fact that men, you know, maybe are more inclined to be interested in competition than interpersonal stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that women are more drawn to relational complexity and drama than men are. And you have these like you're starting with these fair observations about trends in human behavior. And then you are making this jump into, again, to use your phrase, the essentialist realm, right? And the problem with that is that it becomes then, one to me, less interesting. It becomes more exclusionary and it becomes less relatable because you're, you know, you're always leaving people out. I think it's so much more interesting to be like, here are these things that we've noticed throughout, you know, throughout history. Or here's things that we've noticed as these kind of gendered trends. Why do they exist? Where do they come from? In what ways might they be biological? In what ways are they constructed? You know, there's so many more interesting questions to ask. Uh And yet we just eat this up every single time. You know, absolutely. You said that so well and you captured the essence of each of the other instances that i i would mention here right like noticing these trends and then applying that blanket gender segregation over it i agree makes it less interesting it also makes it less true mm-hmm. yeah right? like, like you would know this better than i am because you have more of a foot in sociology but like these kinds of qualitative studies of trends and things like that are stronger when they open themselves up to what does this trend in people mean as opposed to what does this trend in men only or in women only mean Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah absolutely and again that's a that's painting with a broad brush there are certainly places for those things and all that but you know Uh, Two other instances that I wanted to bring up, you know, he mentions this time that he was in his car at a red light and the person in front of him didn't go when the light turned green. So he honked his horn and the guy got out of his car and started screaming at him. And he said, honestly, I wanted to get out there and fight him. (laughs) He's uh, where is it? He says, truth be told, I wanted desperately to meet him there. Men are angry and we really don't know why. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we do. Right. Like there are so many studies on masculine anger. There is so much work done to explain the psychology of anger and why men are more likely to be angry. The short answer is because we're told that we're, you know, con- it's constructed that that's the only acceptable emotion for a man to feel. You're mm-hmm. literally telling me. That it's better for me to feel anger and wanting to punch somebody than it is to understand, oh, this guy's probably having a really hard time. Yeah. If a horn honk really set him off this much, man, that guy's got a yeah. lot going on. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, what what if the discourse was more like, wow, it must actually be really it must be really horrible to be wound that tight, right? Or like to be yeah. on that level of the edge, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it's sort of like every so often you'll see that meme float around or it's like a tweet. Someone I don't remember who who said it first, but it was like, we only think that men are the less emotional species because we've somehow excluded anger as an emotion. Yes. Which, yeah, I mean, obviously that's also painting with a broad stroke, but it's like, yeah, we, we haven't accounted yet fully for the fact that anger is also just like sometimes you know moodiness or or depression or whatever you know also an extreme emotion that Mm -hmm. sometimes 
is out of control and needs to be harnessed. Like, yeah. So, which I think probably what John's trying to do here is make peace with like the, oh, that that anger can be used for something productive. Mm-hmm. Is that where he's going with this? That like pretty much he he, he basically in the, at the end of this quote, he says, uh, uh, well, boys that, that I showed you when boys play at war, they're rehearsing their part in a much bigger drama. One day you just might need that boy to defend you. So there's that little like, what if? Because our job is to be soldiers and to defend and to be angry because there are times when that is necessary. And it again, you know, it comes back to this. You never know. Someday you're going to need someone to be angry and tough. And, me. you know, it's the, the, the like preppers dream, right? Like, oh, that's why I keep thousands of guns and, and you know, M rations and, and uh, spare gasoline in my basement, because one day I'm going to need all of those things. And like, I don't I'm not I'm not shitting on the you know preppers here. I'm just saying, like, it's the same kind of logic. It's that like, oh, someday this thing is going to be relevant. And so I need to stay that way, not even asking on the foundation. Well, if nobody stays that way, will we actually need that? Mm, yeah. yeah. I'm reminded of a, of a scene from a Jordan Klepper interview. Uh, he's from The Daily Show, where he asks how people felt about uh, a woman as president. This was back when it was uh, Cl- Hillary Clinton versus Trump. And this woman responded with, woman is so emotional she could start a war like that she felt like it yeah and he's like haven't all the wars been started by men who were angry because they didn't get the girl they let you know what i mean like it's again like you said we've coded certain things as emotion so that we can deflect them onto the feminine he also defines man's deepest fear okay so again we're coming back to this is the essentially masculine fear that defines the struggle of manhood. Are you ready for that fear? Okay. This is every man's deepest fear, John says. To be exposed, to be found out, to be discovered as an imposter, and not really a man. It, uh, walk me through that one. I'm not sure I understand. I understand. So he doesn't, he doesn't mean literally. He means like figure, figuratively he's going to be exposed as feminine or something. No, (sighs) to be discovered. Oh, I'm seeing the quote again to be discovered as an imposter, Mm -hmm. not really a man. He says a little bit before this that every man has a question. So do you remember you sent me that like trailer for captivating? And in it, Stacey says every woman has a question. Do you see me? Do you delight in me? Like, right. That kind of thing. Yeah, they love that. Yeah, yeah. His version of that is, oh, okay. am I enough? Do mm. I have what it takes? This is, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm just freaking out here because if someone were to say to me, like, which of these questions would you say embodies your deepest, darkest fear, desires, whatever, it would totally be John's, not yeah. Stacey's, which I realize I'm one person. I don't speak for the majority necessarily, but, but that's the fucking point. I just and I, I it brings up that feeling, you know, you would feel in the church when it would be like, but this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't fit me. This doesn't fully embody me. And yet it's I'm being told it's supposed to. And it's like I have so much more drama wrapped up in like, can I provide? Can I take care of people? you know, can I, can I be strong? Then I certainly do. Will I be perceived as, will I be wanted? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and I I don't mean to go off on this. It's just, it's when, when they, when they do that, when they set you up like that with like, here's the question. Right. And then it's totally the opposite for you. You're like, it's just infuriating. It's (laughs) absolutely infuriating. It's see, cause I kind of had the other reaction to it, which is, Yes, I feel both of these. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't I don't think I'd ever phrase it as I want to be delighted in. That feels uncomfortable (laughs) for me. But I do want like I desperately want to make my friends laugh. I desperately want to be known as the person that makes others comfortable, that makes other people like feel happy when they're around me. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I want to be known as the person who causes other people's joy. Right. 
But also, if I didn't admit to feeling like an imposter every second of every day in every one of my roles, I'd be lying. Yeah. Like, I like what you said. What if I don't feel the way that I'm told to feel and I feel the way that you're being told, you know, you being the opposite, opposite, quote unquote. I kind of look at it and say, okay, but this is much more meaningful if you strip away the masculine element. Our deepest fear is to be found out. Mm -hmm. Our deepest fear is some version of imposter syndrome. John here wants to hang his gendered hat on it. Yeah. And hang the entire, like, structural lattice work of this is what it means to be a man to be afraid you don't have what it takes okay but that's tethered to how aspirational are you that's tethered to like how competent are you in your roles like how has society trained you to do the thing you're doing like there's so many family system right I i think there's a lot it's just yeah yeah and and that i think is just Like what I mean when I say flimsy essentialism, I mean, he's just making observations about his life and perhaps trends that he's, you know, he he used the absolutely rock solid. I've talked to many, many men. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, Like, okay, yeah, you talk to your buddy while you were drinking beer in the back of your house, like maybe two of them because, you know, I don't know if they were drinking beer, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. John's got a, a point in here where he talks about like, oh, you know, we've got to take risks. You know? <laughs> That's the other thing. My mom always makes fun of me because I hated playing outside when I was a kid because I didn't like to get dirty. And he's oh like, men want to take risks. And I'm like, <laughs> again, Teddy's going to have more dirt under her fingernails than I will on a given day. By far. <laughs> This, I think, brings us to my final point, which is I don't think this is a book about masculinity. I think John failed his prospectus, right? (laughs) You had one job, John. One job. Uh, Teddy and I are like we've said, we're working on our dissertations. And one big step of that was the prospectus or the proposal. Like, here's what I want to do. Here are my goals. And I think what John did was when he sat down to set his goals, his purpose for writing this, he saw these trends, this, hey, everybody's deepest fear is this thing. These are the things that are the keys to masculinity. And rather than pointing to these are structural patterns I notice, how do I address them? He just sort of, to say it in perhaps the most provocative way that I can, strapped it to a penis and said Mm -hmm. this is about being a man Mm -hmm. not about something else this will always be one of the flaws of you know having a conclusion or a point that you're ready to Uh a point you go in believing and then you are led with the task of proving that point to be true you know he he went in saying there is this deep gender divide scripturally you know, and then personally as well and sociologically and then sort of did the worked his way backwards with proving that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. You know, this is a gendered book. It's companions. You know, they went in with the intent of always separating masculinity from femininity um, in these really kind of deep and and divided terms. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think this is going to become really apparent here with this passage. This is from his conclusion. Tell me what you think of this uh, in relation to this whole idea of it being a gendered goal. This is his conclusion. This is in his conclusion. It's not the end end, but it's in his final full chapter. Okay. Something in us remembers, however faintly, that when God set man on the earth, he gave us an incredible mission, a charter to explore, build, conquer, and care for all of creation. It was a blank page waiting to be written, a clean canvas waiting to be painted. Well, sir, God never revoked that charter. It's still there waiting for a man to seize it. If you had permission to do what you really want to do, what would you do? Don't ask how. That will cut your desire off at the knees. How is never the right or how is never the right question. How is a faithless question. 
It means unless I can see my way clearly, I won't believe it. I won't venture forth. When the angel told Zechariah that his ancient wife would bear him a son named John, Zechariah asked how, and he was struck dumb for it. How is God's department? He is asking you what? What is written in your heart? What makes you come alive? If you could do what you've always wanted to do, what would it be? You see, a man's calling is written on his true heart, and he discovers it when he enters the frontier of his deep desires. To paraphrase Bailey. Bailey, yeah. Yeah. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what would make you come alive, because what the world needs are more men, he said people, but more men who have come alive. Okay. I mean, this is true for all of humanity. This feels like a self-help book. In fact, I feel like your episode's ending similar to mine in that you could easily pluck this out and without maybe the biblical reference, maybe even with it, you would have a pretty standard, like, fluffy self-help that could probably be mostly and loosely inspiring to someone, regardless of whether or not they were like a fundamentalist Christian. A hundred percent. Like, this is not a book about masculinity. This is a book about passion, about complacency, about feeling bored in your role or your lot in life and being willing to take steps to change that. Yeah, that is an inspiring thing in and of itself. Like just even even my very flaccid presentation of it. I had to just make another. No, I mean, it was on purpose. Like I said, I always want to be the one making jokes. But, but even with that formulation of it, the very boring formulation that I made, like, that's a fine, that's a fine, inspiring thing. You know, oh, you're you're I mean, this is right. This is Goodwill hunting. This is Dead Poets Society. This is, you know, Eat, pray, love. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that was actually probably an actual phrase in Eat, Pray, Love, which is like, what would you do if you had nothing stopping you? Right. Like yeah. that whole idea. Well, first yep. you have the money. But beyond that, like, what would you do? You know, yeah. This is like a really important and interesting and, and could be kind of compelling question for the average person who's stuck in like the modern grind, mm-hmm. you know, and in some ways, something that him and Stacy both share is that they're just kind of stating the obvious. You're, you're talking about a fundamental 20th, 21st century human problem here. Yeah. Like this is this is the like, I mean, people have been saying this for decades you know, the modernists, even back if we want to be high handed about our literary references, people like Hemingway and Eliot and Wolf. And, you know, they're, they're all talking about like modern existence is I'm bored. I'm not doing anything meaningful because mm-hmm. of various social and structural forces. Mm-hmm. Like, OK, yeah. My, my grandfather used to say this to me all the time. Uh, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I, yeah. Yeah. Which is. You know, I have my own problems with saying that to a generation that's being, you know, being exploited as workers on a, you know, foundational level. But even still, it's, you know, it's the same thing. This this entire book was just summed up by my grandfather in a single sentence. Like, and I'm so intrigued, too, by the the lack of kind of scriptural foundation that's here. I mean, he draws on a story more metaphorically and rhetorically. But there are so many terms here. A man's calling, his deepest desire, what's true in his heart, loaded phrases that mean nothing. And I don't know if he could really, in in good faith, I don't know if he could link this back to, to scripture in any way that would be truly rigorous and, and interesting and compelling. I mean, and that was the same problem we had with Stacy's as well, that I was sort of torn on because I was like, in some ways, cool. In other ways, you know, yeah. Wh- why are you assigning it this this biblical language when your your whole your whole thing actually isn't really that backed up by Christian theology at all? Yeah. Again, if you if you pull the like, you know, this was published by Zondervan, right? If yeah. you pull the like, like that that sort of veneer of Christian respectability or Christian says, this is just a flimsy self-help book. This yeah. is just a, a generic. self. And, and I'll even go a step further. Like my, my problem with, you know, his use of scripture, I feel much like what you just described with Stacey. Like, you know, on this side of it, I don't, I don't really care. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fine. Whatever. Like if, if that doesn't matter to you, that doesn't need to matter to you. 
But like, again, if you're trying to be a Christian, you got some problems. He goes so far with his scriptural mishandlings. There's two examples that I think are important, and I'll, I'll make these really quick so we can start to wrap this point here. But one, he says, the heart of man is blank. And he quotes a I forget what the, the specific is, but he quotes a piece of scripture. He literally just quotes two thirds of the sentence. Oh, <laughs> the first part of the sentence is counsel to the heart of man mm. is blank. So the subject, like basic grammar, the subject of that sentence is the counsel, not the heart. I care about that as if you're using anything as a source and you misunderstand the basics of the sentence, you're not using the source well. But if you're right, thinking from right. a theological perspective, you're very much abusing scripture by just moving the quotation marks over a couple words. Yeah. I you think know? people find it. I, I've had a friend comment that like a, a reoccurring thing for me in our episodes is me being like, it's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. And in some ways that seems like counter to the person that I am putting <laughs> so much weight now back into the scriptures. And on one hand, yes, because now the Bible, you know, obviously means something very different to me. Um, I don't take it as absolute truth. However, I think my major qualm with this goes back to I, I like the word that you said, uh, uh, you know, it's a harsh word, but abuse in the sense that I saw these types of books do a lot of harm to people when mm -hmm. I was in the church. And the reason why they did so much harm is because they were conflated with scripture. Yes. That they weren't just a different opinion or Christian commentary, that there was this odd, this odd fusion that happened, particularly in the Pentecostal church, less than when I was in the Baptist, a fusion of the literal biblical word of word of God with like Christian culture. And those things were completely collapsed into one another where you didn't know where one began and ended. And now I because I I that I had that click moment and realized that. I feel like I just I become a broken record, but I see it. I see it everywhere. I see it in the Instagram things. I see it, you know, in these books. I see it in people's rhetoric and sermons. It's like, but where is that in the Bible? Where is this scriptural? How is this scriptural? And on one hand, I don't care about it now so much, but I did then. And if you're telling me that I'm supposed to live my life based on a literal word of God, then it does matter that it's missing from that text, right? Like living, breathing. I'm the word. The word was with God. If you're going to embrace that, you better stay pretty close to that text. And you better be honest when the text doesn't speak to the thing that you want it to speak to. That's my mini sermon for the day. I'm sorry. It's just... No, that was, that was, I, I'm so happy that, Hedy, do what makes you come alive. <laughs> no, I, absolutely spot on. I'm with you a hundred percent. It's not that I right. care now as the person I am. I don't, I don't care. Yeah. But you told me I should. Yes. And you do. Right. So I'm holding you to the standards you handed to me. Correct. Correct. I don't think those standards are good standards. But you told me they were. Yes. So and, and you're basing my eternal um, damnation on that text. Yes. Like, so yeah. let's stick with it. You know, like, yeah. let's let's ride it out the whole way. Like, yep. you know, yeah. so you, yeah. you have set up this very clear metric by which I can weigh you because you are weighing me by it. Correct. So either, and and I I I don't like the the false you know dichotomies thing, but just to sort of like put a point on what we're saying, either you think this is bullshit too, right? Or you're very bad at it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's got to be what it is. Or the scriptures are so much more flexible than what you are admitting to. And you are also picking and choosing when that flexibility can happen, which it's probably is such a generous word. But I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I think when it comes down to it, I said maybe we should. Revise our uh, posture on 
Stacey and John's use of scripture because I think we've been saying for two episodes now I don't really care I don't really care and then we just <laughs> went off on them for it I know I'm sorry no no I mean it's good that we're able to acknowledge and point this out it isn't that we care because we care necessarily about scripture in that way mm-hmm. but you and I are 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 academics and teachers we teach research and use incorporation of foundational material mm-hmm. and we're looking at this saying okay you told me that if i wanted you know you the authority figure told me that if i want to do well in the context of this faith i have to do this source material thing well so you and i went cool i'm going to be the best fucking researcher i possibly can right and we did it and we went oh you guys are horrible at this <laughs> right <laughs> oh that's what it is so you and i are are kind of sticking to our professional training and saying you're doing a poor job of this thing that you said was so important so either you don't think it's important or things are more flexible or this isn't a good like there are so many other options too or i'm going to hell because i don't agree with your way of doing this thing mm-hmm. and i'd like to end with this quote from Uh, Kind of the penultimate closing movement of the book, because the closing movement is do what you're, you know, do what makes you come alive. But right before that, John says something. And I think I think it really just topples the whole Jenga tower for me. Okay, he says, naturally, we are inclined to be so mathematical and calculating that we look upon uncertainty as a bad thing. Certainty is the mark of the common sense. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways, that we do not know what a day may bring forth. This is generally said to be with a sigh of sadness, but it should rather be an expression of breathless expectation. Here's the point I want us to land on. There are no formulas with God, period. Oh. So there are no formulas for the man who follows him. God is a person, not a doctrine. He operates not like a system, not even a theological system, but with all the originality of a truly free and alive person. So, John, Stacy, (laughs) here's my question. If there are no formulas for God, period, why have you devoted your entire lives to establishing formulaic understandings of god's creations yeah what a good gotcha (laughs) and you know what they seem they seem like nice people like i don't know if you've seen the interviews and they're probably actually more tolerable to be around than a lot of the other christian writers at the time you know um sorry john and stacy if you're listening to this (laughs) big fans of the show we know (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) no and honestly like that's that that is true i do i I watched an interview with john earlier today preparing for this and he just he reminded me so much of some of my like less trained but zealous like undergrad faculty Mm. you know like that adjunct who doesn't have all of the training to like fully teach everything perfectly in the field but damn they love it not great at everything every part of it but he really loves what he's doing and it's like okay but just know that you're not being self-contradictory and you're not actually doing good by the men you're trying to help because of a weird component of this you know so if we were to talk about a, a kind of spectrum of harm harm being a dramatic word but mm-hmm. it's what's I, I think in my last episode alluded to the fact that I see captivating in light of all of the other like prominent purity texts of the time as being relatively benign. Would you say something similar about this text? I think I still stand by I stand by where I was at the beginning of the episode, which is in and of itself, it's relatively harmless mm. in that it's a particular kind of of masculinity in existence and fine whatever if that but i do believe that perhaps uniquely to wild at heart 
the seed of a much more nefarious and harmful masculinity exists. Mm-hmm. Tweak some of this language and you have justification for abusing women, abusing not just your significant other, but all women. You have uh, not very thinly veiled permutations of manifest destiny and colonial rights of man. You know, like he literally says, the world is a blank canvas and you have the right to go and make it your like you're explicitly using colonial language to to talk about masculinity. So there's a lot of like, just take one more step and it's a problem. Yeah, so I'd say it's on the threshold of harm. It seems like with a lot of these gendered books, and I could be wrong, this is like just off the top of my head, but it seems like there's more potential for harm if taken to its end, you know, final mm-hmm. degree, right, in the masculine books than there is in the feminine books. In the, in the, in the books for women, it seems like if taken to its, its, you know, most extreme place, you would just have a life of complete and other in, in, inactivity, you know? Mm-hmm. Just your life would be the Rebecca St. James sitting in the car waiting. You know, it feels more passive in some ways, the the harm that it does. Whereas there's something about the masculine text, the texts for the mass about the masculine that seem like this could spiral fast into Mm -hmm. something that could harm people more than just one's own self, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I I think that's absolutely well said. And and I, I would tend to agree. Again, I don't know that I've like, held all of these up to each other i think we've only done this is our second grouping of like you yeah. know masculine feminine books so maybe later down the line we'll return to this idea and see if this hypothesis holds up but i i tend yeah. to think that the virtues that are often or i should say the qualities that are often touted as feminine virtues are these like self-denial and like like serving and loving and soft and like yeah you said it perfectly there whereas the masculine side of things i think is more domineering more aggressive more um violent yeah (laughs) there's no bloodshed what's the point right john right greater risk of harming others as opposed to kind of just ruining one's own life i mean you ruining your life too but yeah the there's a sort of impact there that's interesting Look, I look at I look at this book and, and this is a this is a, maybe a, a too much of a niche comment and we'll close up after this. I look at a book like this and this is the kind of thing that leads men to misunderstand like Fight Club. <laughs> right. Fight Club is about is about John and sure. the industry that John is sort of stepping into about mm-hmm. how if we only have this view of masculinity we're killing men just as fast as sort of that complacency thing is. Mm-hmm. But you read this and it's like, yeah, Fight Club, we got to have this secret violence that we hold on to all the time. Like, no, 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 you're doing the wrong thing here. You're, you're reading this wrong. And that's a dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous John, thing. John um, express any qualms with Ikea furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for joining today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss future episodes, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So make sure you search for us and chat with us in those places. We'd love to hear your thoughts about these two books and uh, maybe give us some of your stories about what they look like. And one last thing, we'd be super grateful if you rated the podcast. It'll help keep us visible and ensure that others hear about us. Thanks for joining us on this journey of remembering. Talk to you soon.